I'm going to ask you, if you will, to uh, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. And I want to emphasize uh, this morning as we get started that I really have no intention of preaching through the whole gospel of Matthew, okay? This is not an announcement uh, this morning. Um, We just finished a series, though, uh, on the gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, entitled, Jesus of Emmanuel. And those chapters set up the rest of the gospel and our anticipation of what Matthew is going to say next. Matthew has demonstrated through his story of the birth of Emmanuel that Jesus is indeed our king in the sense that he is coming someday to reign. That the present, though he's not the king on earth now because there's no kingdom, but in the present time, he is still our authority. And he came to be a king. So it would seem that we created a great runway to launch into a study through the entire gospel. But I'm just saying, I don't intend to keep going through the entire gospel of Matthew at this point. But if I were going to preach a series on the whole book of Matthew, I think I might title it something like this. Jesus, our coming king. Because that is exactly how Jesus is presented In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus announces to his own people that they can have both the king and the kingdom that they have been waiting for. If they welcome him and submit to him as the king of their nation, Matthew writes to them in this gospel to say, in essence, your Messiah came to you, though you rejected him. And here's the proof. His birth, the prophecies, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his authority to commission his disciples. So in the fabric of this gospel is the presentation of Jesus as the coming king and his ministry that calls his people to respond to him and to submit to him. And this means that as we read the gospel today, the message is still here calling us to come after Jesus and to submit to his lordship over our lives. I think that as we push further into 2024, this is a worthy theme. Needed call, no matter what we do this year, just have to have this ringing in our ears. The message that we still serve a coming Savior. And he calls us to respond to him in a way that magnifies who he is and what he has commissioned us to do. At the least, it would be helpful, I think, for us to for some of Matthew's gospel and maybe camp out for a few weeks in places like the Sermon on the Mount and, and maybe some of the more significant narratives that define who Jesus is and what he has called us to do. So this morning, let's look for a few moments in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and the ministry of John the Baptist, the announcer of Jesus who calls his hearers to repent before the coming king. So, starting in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and there's a big difference here between coming to be baptized, confessing your sins, and coming to the baptism, coming to witness the event, to check it out, to find out what all the commotion is. John responds to them right away, you brood of vipers, maybe with reference to to Genesis 3. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to from these stones to raise. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, we saw in Matthew 1 and 2 that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king, the the anticipated Messiah. And he weaves throughout his narrative references to the prophetic word and shows how Jesus fits into the picture of who the Messiah is supposed to be. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born as our hope in the midst of great suffering signaled by the the destruction of the children. He is called out of Egypt. And even he settles in this no of his lowliness. He's a Nazorian, as we saw last week. He comes from the, the town of Nazareth. Matthew offers more prophetic evidence of Jesus' identity. He would be announced by a voice calling people to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, any great event of significance demands time for preparation. Weddings are a great example. Uh, Weddings are a thing around here. Uh, people are getting engaged and they start setting dates on the calendar. Most of us have been involved in weddings where the bride had her wedding planned before she was even engaged, before she even knew who she was going to marry, actually. She's been thinking about it for so long, and so has her mother. But after engagement and the date is set, it is full throttle till wedding day. The bride and the MOTB, that's the mother of the bride, and sisters and friends work every week with the coordinator, making endless, minute decisions, planning everything about that special day down to the last flower petal, the last menu item. I mean, it took less planning to put a man on the moon as there is for some weddings. But then there are those other weddings that are more or less sort of thrown together in a little bit of time, very close to the wedding date. And by the way, most of those, in my experience, have still been very beautiful and and Christ-honoring occasions, even though it took a lot of sprinting to get there. But either way, there had to be a period of preparation for the wedding. 
The bride and the groom have to have a marriage license. If you show up without that, you are not getting married, okay? At least not in this church. Uh, so I'll just warn you, okay? So someone has to be lined up to officiate the wedding. There should be witnesses, a token of exchange, preferably a ring. And these essentials... If they're not prepared, the wedding day will come and the wedding will not take place. In fact, Matthew is the only gospel writer who records this parable in Jesus' teaching about the ten virgins who gather to meet the bridegroom. But only the five wise virgins had prepared to meet the bridegroom. While the foolish were scrambling to prepare when they realized they weren't ready. And they were shut out of the wedding feast when the bridegroom came. So John's message to those who are waiting for the king to arrive is you've got to be prepared. You've got to be ready. What does it mean in this account, in verses 1 to 12 of Matthew 3, to be ready What does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? Well, if you look in verse 3, preparing the way of the Lord and making straight his paths is the same idea. That's the way Hebrew poetry works. And Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Where to prepare a way and to make a straight path is the same idea. They're, They're just set on top of one another. When a king was traveling to a city to to gather with his people, every effort was made to assure that the journey was smooth and pleasant for him. Rocks in the roadways were moved. Dips and holes were filled in. The route was adjusted to avoid unnecessary turns or zigzags so that the road was smooth and straight. And, And sometimes this was done at an enormous expense. Isaiah says that before the king arrives, a voice will cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In the Hebrew Old Testament, it's actually prepare the way for Yahweh. Smooth out his way. Make it straight and true. Now, this is a great metaphor. But what does it mean in practical terms? What could the people do to make the Lord's path straight? How could they prepare it? Well, the answer is in verse 2. John's message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is about to come. Verse 1, John says, uh, 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 Matthew says that John came preaching in the wilderness, and his message in verse 2 is one of repentance. If you look at verse 3, Matthew says that this is the one Isaiah said was coming, because look, it's a voice crying in the wilderness. Same word, by the way. And the voice in Isaiah speaks of preparing a way. You see that? Preparing the way and making it straight is parallel with repentance. And the rest of the narrative emphasizes this very thing. If you look at verse 6, it says that the people came to be baptized, confessing their sins, which is preparation for repentance. And when, in verse 8, the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to investigate all of the commotion. John preaches them in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if you look down at verse 11, John explains his ministry in these terms. I baptize you with water for repentance. And so this is John's message. And this is his warning. In fact, the baptism of Jesus is mentioned here as a warning. Baptize with the Holy Spirit or with fire. Baptism that you will receive the life-giving spirit or the fiery 
depends on whether your response is one of repentance. So, what is God saying to us about his son, the Messiah, through Matthew's gospel? I will put it this way. He is telling us, prepare the way of Jesus, your coming king, through hearts of repentance. The coming of Jesus is paved by the repentant, righteous hearts of his people. But what does that mean for us today? We're not the Jews waiting for the kingdom. We're praying for God's kingdom to come. Christ told us to. Because when we pray for that kingdom to come, we are at the same time praying for everything that God is going to do to bring about the, the, the climax of the end of the ages. We can appreciate the repentance that John is calling for via five critical truths about repentance that come through this account in John's ministry. I'll tell you already, we're only going to get to two of them this morning, but I will get to the rest of them next week, Lord willing. So what are these five critical truths? Well, here's simply this, the meaning of repentance. What does repentance mean? We have to boil it down. What do we mean by repent? Repentance is turning or returning to God from sin. I could give you a much more complicated definition, but it really comes down to this. Notice at the, the verb, it's a turning. And it's turning to one direction and turning away from another direction. And the Jews who heard the preaching of John the Baptist would have understood this intuitively because throughout their scriptures, our Old Testament, God was continually calling them to turn from their idolatry and their other sins back to him. And the call to repent was another way of saying to turn with conviction away from a sinful direction back to God and his righteous will. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 18, the prophet assures the Jews, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness that he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. You see what repentance is in this text? When a person is doing something that is wicked, but considers it, as it says here, realizes it is wrong, fears the Lord, and turns away, this is the act of repentance. You turn from one direction to another. I'm totally a victim of habit. I find myself going off in the wrong direction a lot. Just ask my wife, Rena, she'll tell you. Uh, I, I drive, for instance, from my house here in Marietta to campus every weekday. And if she says, hey, would you run this errand for me? And, and the errand is on the route that is somewhat connected to the route I normally drive to campus. I can be almost to campus and realize, I'm five miles too far, and I'm just automatically thinking about something else and just driving the way I do every day and just driving over to campus. So what do I do? Well, first of all, I realize I'm going the wrong direction. And I turn around. Pretty soon I'm getting a phone call. Where are you? Why is it taking you so long? Well, she already knows, you know. She's just checking in with me, make sure I don't get too lost. And when I make that turn, I am simultaneously turning away from that direction and turning to the right direction. And that's what repentance is. 
in a moral context, in a spiritual context, you hear or read the word of God, which expresses the will of God, those two things, by the way, will never be contradictory. Never. And you realize that you are disobeying God. You're not honoring Him. You're you're sinning in some way. You're, You're either not doing something He says, I really want you to do, or you're doing something He says, I really don't want you to do that. And if there's a response of faith, if there's a submission to God, if you say, you know, Christ is my authority, I'm going to listen to him, then you turn around and you will turn from the evil direction and begin walking in the right direction. And we can point to passage after passage in the Hebrew scriptures that these Jewish people that that John is baptizing have probably heard all of their lives. Isaiah calls, let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In Jeremiah, God calls, return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord, our God. Hosea 14.1, Hosea cries out, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now, this seems simple enough to understand. By way of definition, there are a lot of people, however, that get hung up on the idea of repentance because they will say that repentance simply means you change your mind. And that's it. And it has nothing to do with your words or your actions. And and this, this teaching is out there, and I sometimes meet believers who have heard this, and I wanted to mention it for that reason. In fact, some of you will say, if you tell, uh, the, some of these people will say, if you tell the unbeliever that he needs to repent to be saved, then what you're doing is actually adding works to faith. But this teaching, just to cut to the chase, is really based upon fallacious and short-sighted ideas, a bad word study, for instance, which leads in a wrong direction about what repentance actually means. John is preaching repentance. When Jesus begins his own preaching ministry in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 4, do you know what the first word of the sermon is? Repent. And when Peter preaches the death and resurrection of Jesus in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and those who are cut to the heart cry out, what shall we do? The first word out of Peter's mouth is repent. Yes, repentance is a change of mind. But you can't really say you changed your mind unless there's a change of attitude and a change of direction and a change of behavior. You can make yourself feel better as a Christian, by the way. Feeling like I've made some spiritual decisions. I don't like that sin anymore. Or, or I, I think I should turn around now, you know. And, and you feel like that's a great uh, uh climax that you've come to and you're thinking about your spiritual life, but God is not ready to say you repented unless you've made that change through the power of the Spirit. Unless you've actually turned around, turned away from sin and turned to Christ's righteousness. When you come to Christ for salvation, you don't just add Jesus to the bag of everything else going on in your life. All of your sin, all of your activities, all of your enjoyments, all of your lesser loves. And you add Jesus in there and somehow it's supposed to make everything better. That's not Christianity. Rather, when you come to Christ, you abandon everything that is not worthy of Jesus. You turn from these things to him, believing on his death for your sins and his resurrection. But once you become a believer... 
Your life pattern then is to continue to repent. Whenever you see that you have headed off in the wrong direction, you turn around. That's what a believer does. I'm speaking to so many of you right now, perhaps all of you, I don't know, who are believers in Jesus Christ. And I praise the Lord for that. And when you came to Jesus for salvation, you possessed, you, you, you professed faith in Jesus, his death for your sins and his resurrection. And you would probably agree with me that if someone claims to have trusted Christ once upon a time, they, they prayed a prayer or they went to Bible school or something and they, they had that time when they came to Christ, but they no longer obviously believe in Christ now. That they don't follow him by faith now. I think most of them would say they've not ever been saved to begin with. Because the New Testament teaches us that the evidence of true salvation is not that we had faith years ago, but that we have faith now and that we continue on in faith. Well, I'm telling you that repentance is the other side of that coin. You cannot continue in faith that is embracing Christ and his righteousness, unless you are also continuing to turn from unrighteousness. But we get lazy. We stop thinking that our sin is such a big deal. I, I think, especially if we, if we live for a while and we know what sin does to us. We weren't saved when we were really small, and so you know, we, we didn't have so much to, consciously to turn from. But we, maybe we were saved later on in life and we understand the power of sin and the grip of it. And we're sensitive to it. It's easy as we get living for the Lord that we just really stop thinking about it. And we, we, don't, we aren't as sensitive to it as we need to be. And today, if you know the Lord, you can already be assured that his will for you is to recognize an area in your life where you have let sin dwell, where you have refused to address a sinful habit or a sinful attitude or a sinful thought, where you have tolerated respectable sins. Some of you know what that means. God desires you to confess and turn from those sins. It's not something, just like salvation, that you had to do once upon a time. It's something that becomes the life pattern. That's what repentance is. It's simply turning around. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, we have to turn around every day of our lives. In fact, sometimes we have to turn around several times during a day. But that's okay. Your sensitivity to that, the, the fact that you desire to turn, is evidence that you belong to Jesus Christ. You want what he wants. You don't want what Satan wants. You don't want what's against the will of God. And so the first profound truth that we have to realize is that repentance is turning to God from sin. And that we need to make that turn several times. Now, there's another profound truth that helps us to understand this call to prepare the way of Jesus through a heart of repentance. If the first profound truth is the meaning of repentance, then the second profound truth is the place of repentance. Repentance comes through a place of humility. Now, I don't want to be too dogmatic here. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm spiritualizing this story, okay? God forbid. <laughs> that we just find a moralism in the text or say, well, here's a picture of our life and, 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 and leave it at that. But I want you to consider this idea. 
that I think is at least implied in the events that unfold through the ministry of John the Baptist. The place in which God leads his people to repent. When we read the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, they are always bringing their message to the people. Meeting them where they are. They go to the royal courts. They go to populated areas. And we see that often in the Old Testament. But in this case, the Lord positions John in the wilderness apart from the people. They have to go out to him. Isaiah even prophesied that the voice would be crying in the wilderness. John even lived in the wilderness. Verse 4 says that John wore a garment of camel's hair, which would have been very uncomfortable, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 2 Kings 1 verse 8 describes Elijah as wearing a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. So John is obviously styling himself like Elijah. And in fact, you might remember that God promised Elijah would come before the return of the Lord, the King. And Jesus even says in Matthew 11, if you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. That's an enigma for another time. But right now, I just want you to notice John's unusual meager clothing and also that he lived off the land, eating the kinds of food that you and I would have to survive on if we were trapped in the wilderness and we couldn't get anywhere else, eating uh, what those in poverty in the wilderness would eat. So this is a little odd. Uh, We've read the Bible enough, and and this is a good thing that we were familiar with the Scripture, but we've read enough where we we sort of accept things at face value without really questioning them. But I want you to imagine what, what this might have looked like to people. I mean, we have to confess that if a guy like John we're preaching the Bible today, maybe in some grocery store parking lot, or maybe out in the field somewhere when we went by, and oh, there's that guy again. And he's preaching and calling people to repentance, and he's dressed in this really odd way. We might say, you know, we probably shouldn't listen to that guy, or we might sort of back away or not want to be associated. I mean, I think our instinct would probably be to caution people to be very discerning. In fact, the better off you are socially, the less likely you are to journey into the wilderness to listen to this John the baptizer. I mean, what would my friends think and what would others in the town think if they knew I was out there with this crowd? But notice what the people are doing. They are coming in droves. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. That's a big area. And they were baptized by him, by this odd guy in the camel's hair with the leather belt whose breath smelled a little bit like he'd been eating locusts. They went out to be baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. I'm telling you, this is a place of humility. But you see, this is not the first time that the Lord called his people to repentance in the wilderness, where he humbled them. When the Lord first made his people into a kingdom, he brought them into the wilderness and met with them through Moses at Mount Sinai. And God told them in Exodus 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom. Here's the kingdom of God right here. 
You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people responded at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yes, we'll do it. We're down for this. But weak resolve in the people to follow the Lord in humility soon became apparent. And starting with the incident of the golden calf, God dealt with his people in the wilderness. And over the next 40 years in the wilderness, you know the stories, God tested them. He gave them every opportunity to repent. And they kept giving him fits. And most of them died in the wilderness as the next generation was born and grew. In fact, you might remember in... in Corinthians chapter 10, that the Apostle Paul talks about these judgments in the wilderness that were given to us, he says, the church as a warning. Paul says, with most of the Israelites in the wilderness, God was not well pleased. That's sometimes putting it mildly. They desired evil, he says, they indulged in immorality, they tempted the Lord, they grumbled, and God judged them for that. But after 40 years of wilderness wandering, hearing the word of the Lord and watching people die around them for their stubbornness and refusal to repent, a new generation of the nation of Israel stood in the wilderness on the border of the promised land. Moses had now passed away. Joshua was leading them. And Joshua tells them, God is going to give you rest in this land. But you need to follow his word. This is when he tells them, do not turn to the right or to the left. Stay on God's path. Don't let it leave your mouth. But meditate on it day and night, Joshua 1.8. Do what it says, he says to them. And once again, just like their parents and grandparents had spoken 40 years earlier, they answered, all that you have commanded us, we will do. Same expression identically in the Hebrew. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. And this time they meant it because they followed the Lord into the promised land and God gave them victory and blessing. And what you see here is a people who have been broken in the wilderness. A people who have repented in a place of humility. And you know what? This would not be the last time God would lead his people to repent in a place of humility. As we read Israel's history in the Old Testament, we see that God often humbled them through famine and poverty and through servitude to other nations. And God even exiled them to Assyria and Babylon. And God even tells them that when he finally brings them back to make them a kingdom and to rule over them as king, he is going to deal with them in the wilderness. He says in Ezekiel 20, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt hundreds of years earlier, when, when Ezekiel is writing this, still thinking about that wilderness period, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, that's the shepherd's rod, counting uh, whether one is in the flock or not. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know 
that I am the Lord. This is the kind of purging that God was doing in Israel in the wilderness in Matthew 3. In anticipation of the coming king. This is what Isaiah said was coming in a place of humility through the mouth of a prophet who practiced humility. God was calling his people to repent, to turn away from their sin and turn toward him. You know, God works in our lives today in the same way. He, he brings us into a wilderness, if you will. He sometimes brings us to a place of humility, sometimes a place of discomfort, sometimes a place of uncertainty. And he's doing this because he loves us and he's trying to teach us to follow his will, which so often looks like this, turning away from a way of, turning away from a way of error to walk in a way of truth, turning from sin and apathy and saying to the Lord, all that you have spoken, I will do. Because Hebrews 12 tells us, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He chastens his children. This chastening is always a humbling experience. When you were a child and you were chastened, no gentle parenting. That is a humbling experience. And God loves us enough to humble us, to chasten us. If we will not set aside those lesser loves in our lives that are distracting us from truly following the Lord, God will graciously take those distractions away at times. It may be on a sickbed or through the loss of a job position or failure in some endeavor that meant so much to you, or maybe through a broken relationship, God has a way of bringing us to a place of humility. Because it's only in the wilderness of humility that our hearts are prepared to truly say yes to God and no to what God hates. Otherwise, we are so spoiled with everything that we have that we get apathetic about really being serious about his will. You know, that's exactly what James tells us. I think we covered this text this summer. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded, which is very interesting. You, you two-souled, wanting to turn this way and that way at the same time. Wanting to go the right direction and the wrong direction at the same time. But never embracing the right. So he says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James isn't saying here, you've got to go around and have this very sad life and be weeping and crying all the time and, and mourning over your sin. What he is saying though is the, the way to joy, the way to prosperity in the Lord spiritually, the way to follow the Lord is to go to this valley of humility, this wilderness of humility so that God can deal with us. And I wonder this morning if God isn't calling some of you to turn from some behavior, some attitude, some point of pride, some stubbornness, some sin you're harboring. And I'll tell you, every time picking up this text and thinking through this idea, the Lord is telling, is, is, is pricking at me this week. Okay, what, what are those things? Where am I not being as serious as I need to be? What are things that I need to get out? Where do I need to turn and to humble myself and follow the Lord 
That's the way believers think who know Christ as their king and follow him. This is the mark of faith. This is what God's people do. We're believers who continually and humbly turn back to God in faith. The coming of Jesus is paved by the repentant, righteous hearts of his people. So let's live in a way that anticipates the coming of our glorious king. Father, we're...